Hey, everyone. Um, it's great to be with you this morning. Um, bear with me while I just sort myself out here. Um, my name is Nick. Um, for any of you who don't know me, I'm one of the elders here at Village. Um, my family and I, we're, we're part of Village East, so if you, you're thinking um, you haven't seen me before, that will be exactly why. Um, but it's great to be with you all this morning here again over in South. Um, I think this is the first time uh, I have preached here since we were back to one gathering, so that's like an absolute treat just to um, be with you all here um, gathered together as one. Um, and it's always always a joy to, to come over and, and, and worship with you. So um, thank you for, for the welcome this morning. Um, we don't often, we don't, we don't see you often um, or as often as we'd like to, but just on behalf of, of the elders of Village based at East and, and our members over at East, uh, I just want to con- con- assure you of our continued prayers um, just for everything going on um, in and through you all just in the life of Village South. Um, you're an encouragement to us. And, and we love you all for, for what the Lord is doing in and through each of you. Now, as I was preparing um, to preach from this passage this week, um, and, and looking at this morning's passage, I sort of couldn't help but be reminded of uh, a particular TV show, um, that show being Come Dine With Me. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with it. I haven't watched it probably in about 10 to 12 years um, since I was an undergraduate. Um, and the reason that, that I associate it with that time in my life is uh, the frequency with which it was on TV around then meant it was a great tool for procrastination. Um, if you were wanting to sort of avoid working on a piece of coursework or studying or revising or something like that, there was a good chance that if you turned it on at any point of the day, you'd probably catch about four episodes back to back. But what was so entertaining about that, rightly or wrongly, was that in these sort of contrived, created sort of um, scenarios, you had these individuals sort of all hosting each other for these dinner parties, and um, almost the more awkward it was, the better, um, the more entertaining it was. Um, you would see sort of conflicting personalities and uh, people with different opinions sort of clashing, and uh, it, it made for, maybe questionable, but uh, it, it made for some sort of TV anyway. Um, but as we'll see when we work through this, this passage and we see how this event unfolds in, in Luke chapter 7, um, the sort of the, the, the dinner party, the banquet scene that we see, I think, um, hits a whole level of intensity, um, a whole level of awkwardness and, and tension um, that far sort of exceeded even the, the wildest examples of any, any dinner party we've been to or anything that we could, we could see on TV. So we're going to look at that this morning. Um, and... And the account that we read about here is, is only recorded in Luke's gospel. There are other accounts where Jesus is, is anointed by his followers, but, but these are likely to have been separate events to this one. And the first interesting thing that we see here that is really unique about this event is that it's a Pharisee who has invited Jesus to his home. We've seen elsewhere throughout the gospels that, that tax Tax collectors and sinners often engage with Jesus and invited him to dine with them. But here it's a Pharisee who has invited Jesus for a meal. Jesus, as, as we've seen over the, the preceding chapters, was becoming sort of the, the preacher of the moment in Israel at the time. He'd been doing these miraculous works and he was beginning to say some pretty controversial things. He was gaining a reputation by this stage. And, and the things that Jesus was saying, even in, in the, the passage we were, we were in last week, um, these, these were beginning to grab the attention of the Pharisees. And so Simon, this Pharisee, as we learn his name is later on in the passage, invites Jesus to this banquet. We don't know why or, or what his motivations were for inviting Jesus. The Pharisees at this time were, were still very much studying him. They were trying to suss him out 
So it's possible that Simon had maybe been sort of appointed by the Pharisee council to do a bit of digging, um, or, or that there was a plot to sort of lure Jesus into some sort of entrapment or to try and trip him up. Pharisees were sort of saying, let's, let's see what he says. We want to know what he's up to. So Simon, you, you go and do the dirty work here. You kind of make this happen. Um, maybe Simon was, was the soft touch in his crowd of Pharisees. Um, or maybe Simon was, was genuinely, personally curious about Jesus himself. But regardless of the motivation, Jesus accepts Simon's invitation, which tells us that Jesus was prepared to eat with pretty much just about anybody. We know that he was, he was willing to associate with sinners and tax collectors, but here he's willing to accept an invitation to dine with somebody who was part of the very group who would hate Jesus more than anyone else. And it's, it's likely or at least possible that Jesus' attendance, attendance at this banquet was the very reason that it was taking place. As we look at the account of this event, we see it broken into two sections. We see firstly in verses 36 to 39, where there's no dialogue, but the scene is set and a picture is painted of what takes place at this banquet. And then we see in verses 40 to 50, we see this dialogue between Jesus and Simon and the the woman who enters the scene as Jesus teaches us this parable of the two debtors. So we're gonna look briefly just at at these first descriptive verses and try and understand just in, in the context of the day exactly what was taking place in the scene. So this, this banquet that we see here, um, the location of it would in all likelihood have been in the courtyard in Simon's house. This was likely an outdoor courtyard um, that it was commonplace for individuals such as Simon, sort of well-to-do types to have this sort of um, internal sort of outdoor courtyard within the confines of their home that they would have used for entertaining. They would have had these lavish banquets um, and they would have had these esteemed guests and teachers invited almost as, as sort of a symbol of their status. And these events would have been sort of semi-public. They wouldn't have been invitation only. So it would have been common for locals uh, who maybe weren't necessarily invited as such to walk in on proceedings and to come and go observing observing what was taking place. And as for the way the invited guests would have been assembled, I'm not going to try and demonstrate this this fully, But unlike at a family dinner setting where where everybody would have been sitting upright around a dinner table, um, this was slightly different um, when when it came to these larger banquets. Instead, the guests were sort of lying, reclined at a low table. Again, I'm not going to demonstrate it fully for you. Um, But you can imagine they would have been lying on these sort of kind of beds, fanning away from, from the table, and they would have been lying on their right elbow, or their left elbow, sorry, like this, and using their right hand to reach forward and eat. So they would have been laying, sort of reclined, like sort of sardines in a row around the table, fanning away from it. Why this was the case, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, maybe it was common that by the end of such a time of extended feasting, or maybe even in the middle of it, you probably felt like you wanted to be lying in that position. Um, I don't know. But it would have been expected at these events that the conversations that took place um, would, would have been enlightening or profound and that, that there was certainly sort of a, an entertainment or a, a performative element to these gatherings. But it's certain that nobody present would have expected what was about to happen next. And we see in verse 37 the arrival of this uninvited guest. You didn't need to be invited to these occasions. You could wander in. But this woman who arrives in verse 37 was very much part of a category of people who weren't welcome at all. 
She was a woman from the city, as we see here, who was known simply as a sinner. And I think when we read that word sinner, we naturally think of sinner in the New Testament, Romans 3, sort of all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God's sort of context for that word. But this word sinner has a very specific meaning in this cultural context. Her designation as a sinner probably meant that she was either a prostitute or had had multiple husbands or was otherwise caught up in adultery. So Simon, the host, in all of his sort of Phariseehood, was probably crawling inside himself at this point when he saw this woman walking in. Not just from his own sort of self-righteous disdain towards her, but also out of fear for what this was going to do to his reputation. But despite her own reputation and her past, this woman was coming to see Jesus. I think it's safe to assume from this that this woman had heard Jesus previously. We, we see reference throughout the, the past few chapters of, of Luke of this great crowd that had began to follow Jesus as he was journeying through these towns. And J.C. Ryle wrote that it's possible that when you compare the Gospels of Matthew and Luke together, and, and their two accounts of the Gospel, it's, it's possible that this woman may very well have heard the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But regardless of, of what and, and where her prior contact with Jesus had, had been and, and, and how it had played out, it had changed her life. And she had experienced the reality and the blessing of this rest that Jesus promises and his forgiveness, which we'll discover as this scene plays out. The woman had heard that Jesus was having dinner at Simon's house. And in determining that she was going to go and meet him, she acted out of this great courage she has with her this small flask of ointment or perfume, which is probably one of the most costly things that she owned and something many women would have carried around their necks at the time. And she was prepared for exactly how despised she was going to be for what she was about to do. And yet still she decided she wanted to come to Jesus and offer to him what she had to honor him with. Now I think particularly as we, we continue to sort of set, set the scene for what's happening here, when we're familiar with a biblical account like this, um, perhaps one that we've, we've heard growing up in church or in Sunday school, we almost hold, hold sort of a sanitized, cleaned up, romanticized version of the story. And, and while, while sort of the, the, the anointing of Jesus was what this woman, this woman planned to do, I don't think it played out exactly as she was hoping or expecting it would. And I think the tears and the crying probably weren't part of the plan. She had stirred up this courage to enter this place where probably quite a crowd had gathered already. And as she walks in, you can imagine the atmosphere changing instantly. Straight away, she's noticed. She sees the looks she's drawing, the expressions on people's faces. She even hears the sneers and the snide remarks and the, the things people are whispering in each other's ears. She's probably at this point feeling pretty flustered. She's looking, she's scanning the room, she's trying to see where Jesus is located. And in the middle of this moment, in this atmosphere, she begins to break down and weep. We don't know what, what sort of triggered this. Maybe it was tears of, of joy at being, uh, being directly in contact with Jesus again, having the opportunity to honor him this way or tears from just being overwhelmed by the realization of the forgiveness of her sins or perhaps even both at once, but she begins to weep. 
wasn't part of her plan. She might have even been hoping that she could sort of subtly come and go, honor her Lord, and leave without creating a fuss. But all hope of that is gone at this point. And as she walks on, she comes to stand behind Jesus, who, remember, would have been lying with his feet facing away from the table. You can imagine by this stage that she's blubbering, like she's, she's well gone. She's trying to control these sobs, but probably becoming more and more overwhelmed as she goes. Like think of those great sobs that a toddler gives out when they can barely catch a breath through them. And in all reality, she was probably a bit of a kind of blubbering, snotty mess at this point. I don't know what first century makeup was like, but if they had mascara, it, it was probably everywhere. And as she reaches Jesus, these tears that are rolling off her cheeks begin to land on Jesus' feet, which as we discover later, Simon didn't even have the courtesy of offering to have Jesus' feet cleaned on arrival, which would have been the cultural norm. And as the tears fall, they begin to create spots in the dirt on Jesus' feet. And they continue to shower his feet and to sort of wash the dust and the dirt from the roads away. Now she's majorly off script at this point. I was probably completely flustered and thinking, what am I doing? This is happening to me in front of all of these people. I don't have a towel. And before she knows it, she's on her knees at Jesus' feet. To make matters worse, she then lets her hair down which was culturally one of the most shameful things a woman could do in public. And yet she uses what she has and begins to wipe the tears and the dirt away from Jesus' feet. She then kisses his feet in this immense display of humility and submission and just sheer unbridled love and devotion for Jesus. She is... <laughs> <laughs> she is feeling and literally facing the scorn of the host and his guests she knows she's despised she can see the looks she's getting and she hears what people are whispering because of her sin and yet she had such a singular focus on being able to show her savior the kind of love and devotion she had deemed him being so worthy of in the presence of her Savior and experiencing the delight of serving him this way, she becomes increasingly oblivious to the stares and the sneers of those around her. She couldn't care less by this point. She takes the flask, she breaks it, and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet with the perfume. Only genuine love could have evoked this display. Regardless of the, the, the level of direct contact this woman had had with Jesus and his teaching beforehand, she had, had experienced it in such a way before this event that he had changed her life to the point that love and gratitude had overflowed from, her, from it. She was determined, regardless of what anyone else thought or said, to show Jesus what he meant to her. Social acceptability, concern for reputation, self-preservation, all out the window gone, irrelevant, because of the joy that was to be found in honoring her Savior. She was in love with her Savior, and in this moment, she worships him with all of her heart, her soul, her mind, and her strength. So by this point, the wheels are, are really off the dinner party. Um, there is, as we see it 
from, from, from our vantage point, this incredibly moving scene unfolding. But Simon and the Pharisees, from their position of self-righteousness, as far as they're concerned, Jesus was just heaping condemnation on himself and undermining his own claims by allowing this to happen, by allowing this woman, a sinful woman at that, to engage with him in this way. All conversation had stopped around the banquet table, and this was now the source of entertainment. Everyone's eyes are glued to it. Can't look away. They're looking to the woman. They're looking to Jesus. They're looking to Simon. Everyone's wondering what's going to happen next. In verse 39, then we see an insight into the mind of Simon and what he was thinking. I think this confirms for us what Simon's disposition towards Jesus is, that his mind was already made up about Jesus, and he was just looking for anything to reinforce this. And so he internally has this conversation in verse 39 and says to himself, if this man was a prophet, surely he would know who this woman is. Surely he would know that she isn't worthy of him. Surely he would know not to allow himself to be defiled by allowing her to continue doing this. In fact, in the original Greek text, what Simon is saying is, if he were a prophet, which, by the way, he isn't, surely he would know this. He's probably thinking, wait till I report back on this. Wait till the guys hear about this. Which is more than a bit ridiculous, I think, because it didn't take for Jesus to be a prophet to know what this woman's story was. Um, at the minute, Grace, our, our five-year-old, likes to, to play this game where she gets one of her toys in one of her hands and holds both of them out in front of me. And I have to guess what hand the toy is in. She hasn't quite grasped the idea that she needs to get something that's small enough to fit in her hand, so quite often I have a tightly clenched fist and then another hand that's struggling to conceal what's inside it. It's very cute, but it's not hard for me to see with absolute certainty what is inside. And likewise, it didn't take for Jesus to be a prophet to know what was going on with this woman. The whole room knew what kind of person this woman had been. It was more than a bit obvious when she walked in that she didn't fit this religious social mold. So that sort of paints the picture of what's going on. Tension's thick. And that brings us to the second part of this account where we see the dialogue beginning between Simon and Jesus. When the crowd hears Jesus' teaching of this parable and when things get increasingly awkward and more uncomfortable for the Pharisees. And as we work through this, uh, these sort of next 10 verses or so, there's just a few points along the way that I want to draw our attention to this morning that Jesus teaches us about the gospel. So back to Simon's question. Simon has, has just internally asked himself this ridiculous question. And by answering him directly, we see Jesus not only confirming that he knew everything about this woman, but he also knows the very mind and thoughts of Simon. Verse 40, Jesus speaks for the first time and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. I wonder at what point Simon realized what's about to go down. I wonder if he even was aware of sort of the storm that was about to hit him at this point. Because up to this point, he's been thinking, now nah, this guy's not a prophet. But now Jesus is saying, Simon, let's have a chat. I have something I want to say to you. And Simon says, say it, teacher, go on. Simon, it seems, is almost thinking he's going to continue to humor Jesus here. He's going to let this scene shake out a little bit further for the entertainment of his guests. Simon's thinking, yeah, let's let Jesus do his worst here. So Jesus tells this story from verse 41. A certain moneylender at two debtors 
One owed, one owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50. A denarii would have been around a, a day's wages for a laborer in those days. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? It's a simple parable that Jesus asks Simon, which of the two debtors will love the moneylender more? And here we see Simon become slightly indignant or reluctant. And he says, the one, I suppose, for whom he has canceled the larger debt. It's almost like Simon is maybe beginning to see where Jesus is taking this. Either that, or he's personally just so far removed from the concept of forgiveness that the analogy is genuinely lost on him. But Jesus says, you have judged rightly. And then he turns to the woman in the scene and directly draws attention to her and diverts Simon's attention to her as he starts to bring into focus the bigger picture of what's going on. Jesus then uses this parable to expose Simon's heart and to show what was really going on in the woman's heart. This is the first thing I want us to see Jesus teaching us about the gospel here, and that is the offense of the gospel. By this point, you can imagine it's probably gotten pretty quiet. You can hear a pin drop. The sneering and the remarks have all stopped. And for Simon, the banquet which he thought was going to be so beneficial for his status and standing in society is quickly beginning to get away from him. Now, we know that Jesus in this parable is pitching Simon the Pharisee as the, 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 the 50 denarii sinner against the 500 denarii sinner of the woman. But what we need to see here is that Jesus is dismantling the Pharisees' false belief that they were those who he described in Luke chapter 5 who aren't sick and aren't in need of a physician. Jesus isn't talking about Simon and the woman's comparative debt of sin, as they might see it, but instead their subjective sense or awareness of their own debt. Jesus is not positioning the Pharisees as the righteous ones who don't need forgiveness. He's explicit here in this parable that there is a debt to pay for both debtors. Jesus is clarifying what he had meant in Luke chapter 5, verse 31, which in this context can be read as, I did not come for those who think they aren't sick. I did not come for those who think they are righteous. Jesus is saying, you've judged correctly, Simon, but you're still missing the point. There are no little and large sinners. Jesus is saying, we are all sinners, but there are those with little awareness of our sin and those with a great awareness of our sin and our great need for forgiveness. It's clear Jesus doesn't rank sinners on a scale from better to worse. Sin, of course, varies in some respects, including the consequences different sin can have in this lifetime. We've all sinned differently and in different ways, but all sin is equally deserving of God's judgment. In the economy of the gospel, it doesn't matter how much you can't pay. If you can't pay, you can't pay. Jesus is saying, she may be regarded in a worldly sense as the 500 denarii sinner, but you're still a sinner, Simon. Because you're trying to claim some sort of relative righteousness for yourself because of your perceived lesser sinfulness, you've lost sight of your need for a savior. And Jesus continues to use the example of this woman and her actions to make an example of Simon. In verses 44 to 46, we see three ways in which Simon did not show love and three ways the woman did. If Simon had been courteous, a servant would have came to greet Jesus on his arrival and would have washed his feet. 
But not only was the woman more courteous toward Jesus, she was more honoring, more respectful, more devoted, and more loving toward Jesus. Jesus says, she cried, you didn't. She washed, you didn't. She anointed, you didn't. Jesus is saying to Simon, she understands, you don't. All you have failed to do, Simon, she has done, and even more. These displays of love and devotion are an indication of her sense of forgiveness. This woman understood her sin better than anyone else. And because she understood her need, and because of that, she understood her need of a savior better than Simon did. Brothers and sisters, the gospel tells us that we are so much worse than we want to think we are. All of us. It's so tempting to try and claim little tokens of righteousness for ourselves and to to be at ease with some of the forms of sin in our own lives. Pray that we would never do this and that we would never, never rob Jesus of any of his glory in trying to minimize how much we need him. And trying on our own strength to clean up the appearance of our own lives. We might not have the same story as this woman, but just as she was, we are all sinners and we all have a debt that we cannot pay. Then Jesus takes things an unthinkable step further in verses 47 to 48. And it's here we see the second thing that I want us to note, and that is the assurance of the gospel. Verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus here, without in any way minimizing the woman's sins at all, declares that she's forgiven. Now, a quick clarification on this, that that, that for she loved much is not a causal for can be read as, as, as because, rather it, it's an evidential or an effectual for. So Jesus is not saying her sins are forgiven because she loved much. He's saying her sins are forgiven for here is the evidence of this. Here is the love that comes from forgiveness. Here is how you know her sins are forgiven. And he continues and clarifies that point at the end of verse 47 when he says, he who is forgiven little loves little. See, the forgiveness always precedes the love. He then says to the woman in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And this again is in the perfect tense. Jesus is saying, your sins have been forgiven. This woman loved because she was forgiven. She wasn't forgiven because she loved. Her love was the result, not the cause of the cancellation of her debt. See, Christ cancels sin as a way of awakening love in our hearts, not the other way around. Now, by this point, Simon couldn't mistake that the parable was definitely directed towards himself and the other Pharisees. His guests probably weren't sure where to look at this point. It had probably gotten pretty awkward. If it was today, we'd probably all be sitting there reaching for our phones just to have something to look at. But Simon, in his self-righteousness, believed he was the smaller-scale sinner in need of a smaller dose of forgiveness. Simon believed his righteousness called for a smaller savior. And so the pronouncement of the woman's sins being forgiven 
is also the rebuke of Simon. Because there are no good people and bad people in the gospel. There are bad people, which is all of us, and there is Jesus. This parable served two purposes. It reminds us that we all stand indebted to Christ. Whether we're religious or irreligious, people far off from him, people nearby, we're all debtors to grace. But the parable also shows us that the more more mindful we are of our indebtedness, the more of God's grace we will know. We're in big trouble if we think we only need a little bit of God. He who's forgiven little loves little. John Bloom writes that this little sentence, he who has forgiven little loves little, reveals a mammoth truth for us. That we will love God to the degree that we recognize the magnitude of our sins and the immensity of God's grace to forgive them. I'm going to say that again. We will love God to the degree that we recognize the magnitude of our sins and the immensity of God's grace to forgive them. It's for this very reason that often those who have lived the most overtly sinful lives before meeting Jesus, that they are the ones who become his most radical and his most fervent followers. Think of the the Apostle Paul before his conversion. Think of John Newton, the the hymn writer who, who wrote Amazing Grace, which we still sing today. John Newton was a slave trader before his conversion, before he found forgiveness for his sins in Christ. John Newton wrote late in his life, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great savior. By this stage, the party's done. Simon's probably telling everyone that he forgot to get dessert tonight. And Jesus pretty much wraps up the banquet in verse 50 by turning for a last time to the woman and saying, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here is a woman, Jesus says, who you all thought was as big an enemy of God as there was, and she is the one being told your faith has saved you. She is the one who was declared righteous. She is the one who's forgiven. She is the one who's a friend of God, not you, Simon. She is the one you all thought was dead, but she is alive. And why? Simply, because the woman believed that she desperately needed forgiveness, the forgiveness that Jesus offered in his gospel, while Simon didn't. What glorious hope that is this morning. See, just as the offense of the gospel tells us that we're all big sinners, we're all 500 denarii debtors, the assurance of the gospel tells us that we have a big savior. Praise God, there's no small sinners because there is no small savior. We have a great savior who in this event is making the most scandalous claim that any man has ever made, that he has the ability to forgive our sins and to pay our debts. Despite everything he knew about this woman, Jesus welcomed her acts of repentance and assured her of her salvation. The onlookers are shocked and they ask, who is this who even forgives sins? This echoes the previous questions we saw in Luke 5 when the Pharisee says, when the Pharisees say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And the Pharisees are right in one regard. God alone can forgive sins, but they were blind to the crucial truth 
that Jesus is the very Son of God. And with that authority, he can make such an audacious claim as to forgive our sins. There is great and glorious hope for all of us in the gospel. Regardless of our sin, regardless of our background, our past or our present, if you know you're a sinner with a great need this morning, praise the Lord because there's a great Savior. Thomas Watson once said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And what he meant was, until we see ourselves for who we truly are apart from Christ and considering the depth of our need and the extent of our brokenness, the totality of our depravity and the condemnation we deserve, we will not see Christ for all he truly is and all he has truly done for us. But this woman who was there in that moment declared a sinner forgiven, she understood the great divide between herself and Jesus. For this reason, she understood the value of her forgiveness and she was determined to serve him and bless him because of this. And it's in that that I want us to see briefly just the fruit of the gospel. J.C. Ryle once wrote that grateful love is the secret to doing much for Christ. True salvation, that is real forgiveness and the love and humility that this brings is the only motivation that can produce effective work in God's kingdom. It's because of grace that we're forgiven. It's because of forgiveness that we love. And it's because of that love that we serve and that we do. I'll say that again. It's because of grace that we are forgiven. It's because of forgiveness that we love. And it's because of love that we serve and that we do. We say this often in village, but our doing for Jesus must never outstrip our being with Jesus and our abiding in him. Our love for him and our marveling at him for who he is and all he has done for us can alone be our motivation for anything we want to do to serve him. Or if our serving and, and our doing comes from, from a posture of trying to keep up a certain appearance or, or out of misplaced faith, in, in our own performance and our own actions, we'll inevitably, inevitably just become exhausted and disillusioned trying to sustain those on our own strength. And in that, we're then in danger of falling into that Phariseeism and that judgmentalism of others that undermines any awareness we have of our need for a savior. Just as Simon didn't love Jesus because he didn't value the forgiveness that Jesus offered, he also did not serve Jesus because he didn't love him. The woman, by contrast, loved much because she was forgiven much. She loved because of what she knew she had been saved from. And she did much for Jesus because she loved him. She did all that Simon didn't do and more, and she was willing to endure the scorn that she would face while doing it, all because she loved her Lord. We look at the, the final verses of, of today's passage, just the first three verses of chapter 8. We see Luke, who in general makes more reference to the women who follow Jesus than any of the other gospel writers. Uh, but we, we see him here in these three verses detail this list of women whose, practical, whose love and practical devotion to Jesus and his disciples as they traveled was such that Luke thought it, 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 was, it was important enough to record. But I don't believe it's any coincidence that this chapter begins this way, immediately following this account of the banquet. 
believe Luke is deliberately making a connection here that this, this group of very different women from very different backgrounds and social standings all acted and served in a similar way because they were united together by one thing, their love and devotion to Jesus. Like the woman, the woman in the section before them, they too were aware that from their different backgrounds and experiences, they all had been forgiven much. And they loved much and did much for Jesus because of this. In our church today, there will never be more done for Christ until there is more love for Christ. You want to see our church doing more good works, denying ourselves more, overcoming our flesh more, being more effective in evangelism? We need to love Jesus. Jesus' question to Simon was, who will love more? And loving Jesus more needs to be our primary aim. Because when we neglect this aim and neglect time spent delighting in Jesus, out of that awareness of what he saved us from, this is when we amble through our walk with Jesus, trusting in our own wisdom and relying on our own strength. And this happens because fundamentally, we don't think we need God all that much. This is a sort of functional self-righteousness. The more in tune we get with our weakness and our spiritual poverty, the more of Christ we experience. The more we will treasure him, the more honor we will give him through what becomes joyful service to him. We struggle to see the fruit of the gospel in our lives. Maybe it's because we've never truly, fully loved Christ. Maybe that's because we've never truly faced up to the kind of sinner that we are. Spurgeon wrote that that too many of us think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. We have to be brought to an awareness of our sin because if we know we are great sinners, the glorious good news of the gospel is that we have a great Savior and one who is worthy of love and lavish devotion and service. So let's not be 2022 Pharisees, more concerned with cleaning ourselves up on our own strength that we might make ourselves appear as a lesser sinner. Let's not treat Jesus' forgiveness as the plaster for a stubbed toe, but let's treat it for what it is, the rescuing of us from a blazing inferno of sin that we could never get ourselves out of on our own strength. Let's confess and grieve our sin often before gazing and glorying at our Savior who is perfect in all the ways that we are sinful. This is the call call of the gospel on our lives, brothers and sisters. Let us embrace our need for Jesus like never before, taking seriously the sin that he alone has the power to save us from, that we would love him more faithfully, more fervently, and more fully than ever before, and that from this posture, we would be truly useful kingdom servants. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you and I will give you rest. May we always be quick to take this invitation and there hear the words that this woman heard. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Um, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, creator and sustainer of all things. Thank you that you're a gracious and merciful God. You're good beyond what we can even begin to fathom. 
Thank you that in your son Jesus, we have a great savior, a once and for all sacrifice whose life, death, and resurrection means our sins, past, present, and future, are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Thank you there's no longer condemnation for those of us who are in Christ because of what he has achieved for us. May we always gaze and marvel and wonder at Jesus and never forget our need for him and his willingness to offer himself for us. By your Holy Spirit, equip, empower, and embolden us to live lives as offerings worthy of you, God. For it's in your glorious name that we pray. Amen. Um, we're gonna